0: This is Bloomberg Law with June Grosso from Bloomberg Radio.
1: The Supreme Court justices grapple with the original meaning of the word seizure in the Fourth Amendment in a case where a woman was shot in the back by police as she drove away in her car, an escape that can limit her legal options to sue the police for excessive force. There was a parade of hypotheticals from many of the justices who subscribed to originalism, that is, interpreting the Constitution based on its original meaning at the time it was adopted. Here are Justices Clarence Thomas, Samuel Alito, and Neil Gorsuch.
0: If a baseball pitcher intentionally beams the batter, would we say, wow, that pitcher just seized the batter? If someone is hit with a projectile
2: and does not stop, let's say a rock, a snowball, a a stone, uh,
0: would that be uh, an arrest on, uh, or a seizure uh, under your analysis or your approach? There were bazookas going off, there, there's all sorts of massive show of force, uh, but he doesn't stop, he keeps going, he's blasting through at 100 miles an hour and he blasts through and on he goes, bazookas firing everywhere.
1: Much of the questioning centered on a precedent, Hodari v. California, written by originalist icon Justice Antonin Scalia, that said the application of physical force, whether or not it subdued the arrestee, was sufficient for a seizure. Here are Justices Brett Kavanaugh and Sonia Sotomayor.
0: With respect to Hodari, I think there are two issues. First, was Justice Scalia right in the discussion? And then second is the precedent question. On the first question of whether he was right, um... You're arguing, as I understand it, that Justice Scalia and really all nine justices in that case were wrong about the original meaning of the Fourth Amendment.
2: Excuse um, me, counsel. No, you're asking us to reject the clear line drawn by hadari and say that Justice Scalia was wrong about what the common law showed.
1: My guest is former federal prosecutor George Newhouse of Richards Carrington. George, the lower courts blocked the plaintiff from suing the police in this case. Explain why the Fourth Amendment, which bars unreasonable searches and seizures, is so crucial to her case.
0: Well, it's an interesting and unique question. And, of course, the ultimate legal question is, did the police officers use excessive force in trying to stop her? But under the Fourth Amendment, is it a seizure when the police don't actually Prevent you, stop you, they don't lay hands on you. In this case, they shot at her car 13 times and hit her twice, but she didn't stop. She kept on driving and she drove, in fact, for another 70 miles, stole another car, and didn't get to the hospital until the next day. So the argument before the Supreme Court was whether or not she had been seized within the definition of the Fourth Amendment. That makes a difference because if she has a Fourth Amendment claim rather than a due process claim, she has an easier time establishing damages against the officers. So that's what the court was wrestling with. Is this a seizure? And there really is no case, no prior historical precedent that's on point.
1: There were all kinds of unusual hypotheticals. What were they trying to get at?
0: They're trying to make an interesting point. And Alito actually also asked whether a person shot by a sniper a thousand yards away has been seized when the bullet enters their body, suggesting, of course, that. He couldn't possibly believe that the answer would be yes. These were rhetorical questions. What they're trying to get at is normally for there to be a seizure, the police have to either lay hands on you, physically restrain you for at least a moment, or issue an edict you know, halt and you obey their command and you are, in that sense, detained or seized within the Fourth Amendment. And here, neither of those occurred. They shot at her and tried to stop her. But you might put it this way. It was more of an attempted seizure. Had they shot her and the car stopped, then there clearly would have been a seizure within the, in the context of the Fourth Amendment. So Chief Justice Roberts and Alito peppered the lawyer for the um, plaintiff with these interesting hypotheticals, including the one, if a batter is hit by a pitch ball, has the batter been seized? And, of course, the answer is no.
1: So for the originalists on the court, the plaintiff right. said that this is – the ordinary meaning at the time of the founders, that back then seizure included seizures of goods and arrests. So why didn't the originalists on the court seem to buy that argument?
0: Well, the problem is that you have a factual situation that was not typical, indeed contemplated at the time of the founders. So the discussion during the oral argument was over common law issues about when bailiffs in merry old England would try to enforce debts In some cases, they would reach in through a window and grab the debtor and, in that sense, restrain them. So that would be a seizure. But here, as the justice has pointed out, 200 years ago, there were no police and there were very few firearms being used in law enforcement. So this whole issue about when the police fire a weapon and hit you, have you been seized within the definition of the Fourth Amendment? Seems clear to me based upon the the oral argument that Alito and the conservative textualists aren't going to be disinclined to accept this argument. They're going to say, look, you're only seized if you stop and you obey the command or you're physically disabled, and neither of those occurred here.
1: A huge point of contention in this argument was over an opinion by Justice Scalia from 30 years ago where his reasoning supports the conclusion that this shooting was a seizure. So was the question whether that was dicta that doesn't have to be followed?
0: You're right. That dicta, which is to say, is language in a court opinion that is not central or essential for the holding. And that's really the question about Scalia's opinion at Odari. What happened in that case, of course, was a young man believed by the police to be engaged in a drug deal. And the police officer approached him. And like the woman in our case here, he took off running and the police officer ran after him shouting and he did not stop. And while he was fleeing, he reached into his pocket and threw the rock of cocaine down on the ground. And the question was, was he seized at the time that the drugs were disposed of? And the holding there was he was not. So there's language in the opinion that everyone agreed seems to apply to the case. But Scalia's reasoning is not necessarily binding on the court just because the facts of that case are quite different. Really, as you know, Justice Scalia was a great example of a very conservative judge whose jurisprudence when it came to Fourth Amendment issues sometimes was very unpredictable. He would frequently rule against the police.
1: And the Solicitor General's office was arguing in favor of the plaintiff and against the police officers here.
0: A remarkable turn. And in fact, the Department of Justice position in Hodari was different than it was in this case. So the justices asked her about whether or not Department of Justice was changing its position, which is a, a remarkable turnaround.
1: So what's your take on how the justices might rule?
0: Very hard to predict based upon the questions asked at oral argument how the justices are going to come out. So my prediction is if they look at this and they say, what did the framers have in mind when they use the word seize?" They didn't use the word struck. They didn't use other words that were broader. And the seizure, again, in the common law, the textualists would say, involves a direct touching of the officers or a command to stop that is obeyed. And lacking either of those two, this is, was not a seizure. It may have been an excessive use of force, but the Fourth Amendment requiring a seizure would not be implicated. And of course, at the moment, the textualists have the vote. So that's probably the way the Supreme Court will come out.
1: Thanks, George. That's George Newhouse of Richards Carrington. Coming up next, female Supreme Court advocates are finding an unusual route to the High Court. I'm June Grosso, and you're listening to Bloomberg.
0: We'll hear an argument this morning in case 1946, the United States Patent and Trademark Office versus Booking.com. Ms. Ross?
2: Mr. Chief Justice, and may it please the court.
0: Thank you, counsel. Uh, Ms. Tableson?
1: Mr. Chief Justice, and may it please the court.
0: Thank you, counsel. Uh, Ms. Corcoran, three minutes for rebuttal.
1: Thank you, Your Honor. Though you hear the voices of more female attorneys at the Supreme Court than in past decades, women advocates are still fairly rare at the court. And the percentage of women attorneys has gone down since 2016 when it reached the highest in history. So many women are taking a less traditional route to the court. Joining me is Kimberly Strawbridge-Robinson, Bloomberg Law Supreme Court reporter. Kimberly, women argued between 12% and 21% of the time in recent terms. That does seem fairly low compared to the number of women attorneys there are. That does. And actually, one thing that I think really hits at home for me
2: is the court hands out these day call sheets. And it just lists all the attorneys that are going to be arguing in cases that day. And I remember there were more Jonathans who were arguing in the Supreme Court one day. There were three then women who are arguing just two, So I think that's just an example of how this really is kind of a, an imbalance between men and women in a place where it really doesn't seem like there should be.
1: Now, why has the traditional launch pad for Supreme Court women advocates been the Solicitor General's Office?
2: Well, it's because the Solicitor General's Office argues so many more cases than any other entity or law firm that comes before the justices. They tend to argue about half of the cases that come before the justices, and that's a lot of opportunities for arguments. And so we've seen traditionally that that's where men and women tend to get their first Supreme Court arguments is through that office.
1: And that's maybe changing a little bit now. The number of cases argued by women has fallen in recent years. The high-water mark was in 2016, and then it started plummeting in 2017. Why?
2: Well, there were a number of women who left the Solicitor General's office, longtime veterans like Sarah Harrington and Nicole Saharsky who have argued between them dozens of cases. And they left right as the Obama administration was heading out and the Trump administration was heading in. It seemed like the Trump administration had some difficulty in getting women to join the office, but it does seem like they are making some strides in that area now. We saw the first attorney to argue on behalf of the Solicitor General's office this term was a woman making her first Supreme Court argument.
1: So how are more private firms becoming a launchpad for women advocates at the Supreme Court? Well, we're seeing a handful of
2: women advocates who are getting their first arguments not through the Solicitor General's office, but in firms. And the women I talked to who had gone this route said that it was a mark of achievement because it's hard to get a case in a firm because you not only have to convince your bosses that you're up to the task, but also the client in a way that you don't have to do when you're in the Solicitor General's office. So we do see women arguing more cases from law firms. But again, the numbers are still really out of whack. Most attorneys who come from private practice are men and not
1: women. I found this fascinating. The women you spoke to said you not only need a mentor, but the mentor basically has to convince the client to let you argue. That's
2: right. And, you know, that was the one thing of all the women that I talked to. They all said you need to have a mentor and you need to have a mentor who will be willing to go to bat for you with the clients and who will be willing to let you work closely enough with clients, that when the time comes to make the ploy for you to make the argument, that the client is comfortable with you and letting you take on very high-stakes arguments.
1: Speaking about how difficult it is just to get a Supreme Court case, you spoke to Sarah Harris, who is going to have her first case before the Supreme Court next month, and she said that many Supreme Court practitioners would rather give up an appendage than an argument opportunity. (laughs) So really, you're fighting two different battles, It does seem that way. And a lot of times we'll see a
2: man from a particular firm arguing three or four or five cases in a term and there won't be any women or any other attorneys from that firm who argue in that year, although there certainly are a lot of other attorneys working on those cases. But that does seem to be changing. We see a lot of men mentors who are really trying to change that, who understand that that is a problem and seek for ways to get other attorneys, not just women, to get arguments as
1: well. Are many of the women who argued a lot of cases, sort of the veterans now, are they mentoring women? They are. So one of the women
2: that I talked to in particular that she was mentoring women like crazy, that there were so few women partners around that it really was up to her on her shoulders to mentor more than her fair share of them. But I think they all see it as an honor and not really a duty. All of them want to see more women in the Supreme Court space and all of them want to help young lawyers to get there.
1: Does one firm stand out as having more women in its Supreme Court practice than others? Well, there are a handful of
2: law firms that seem to have gotten a leg up on this. Williams & Connolly, which not only has Sarah Harris, but has Lisa Blatt leading the way. We see Aaron Murphy from Kurt Berlin & Ellis, who worked with the superstar of the Supreme Court, Paul Clement. And we see other places like Oreck and Wilmer Hale and Hogan and & Lovell putting out not just women, but a lot of
1: other diverse and young attorneys up at the Supreme Court. Thanks, Kimberly. That's Bloomberg Law Supreme Court reporter, Kimberly Strawbridge-Robinson. I'm June Grosso. Thanks so much for listening. And please tune into the Bloomberg Law Show every weeknight at 10 p.m. Eastern on Bloomberg Radio.